0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Brooke Pollock is the founder and managing partner at Hutt Capital, a blockchain venture capital fund of funds and direct investment firm. In this conversation, we discuss the institutional LP world, how a traditional due diligence process works, common mistakes fund managers make, in the current Blockchain VC fund landscape. I really enjoyed this conversation with Brooke, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is the World Series of Trading by Bybit. The World Series of Trading is the first of its kind to bring the exhilaration of crypto trading competition to the global stage. World Series of Trading believes in the importance of empowering traders who embody the passion and power for crypto trading. This biannual event aims to champion the spirit of competition, fair play and cultivate camaraderie among crypto derivatives traders from around the world with the ultimate goal of creating positive change in the crypto space. Here's the best part. This year's prize pool is a whopping 200 Bitcoin. That's right. If you participate in the World Series of Trading, you've got a shot at winning part of the 200 Bitcoin prize pool. So. Go in the description of this episode and click on the link to sign up. The World Series of Trading is there for you. Also, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business, technology, and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Brooke. I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, guys, bang, bang. Super excited to have Brooke on. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Anthony, for having me.
0: For sure. So let's start with your background. Um, before you decided to go out on your own and start Hut Capital, what, uh, what did you do?
1: So before Hut Capital, I spent 10 years, uh, I guess you might say, in the institutional LP world. So I started my career working here in Portland, Oregon for a family office consultant. And yeah, it's a consultant that helps wealthy families with their investments overall and building a portfolio and generational wealth and all the things you would think of but specifically i worked on the private markets team so our team helped these families to invest in private funds and that was effectively anything that was illiquid not a hedge fund so we're investing in buyouts growth equity venture credit real estate energy timber you know a whole host of private strategies a pretty you know broad world um, you know, did that for a while and then actually moved out to the East Coast for a few years, uh, first in Philadelphia with a firm called Hamilton Lane, which is, is now a public company, but it's a massive private equity advisory and asset management firm uh, based in Philadelphia and a you know, similar model on the advisory side, except their clients are more like big pension, sovereign wealth funds. So they have a, a very large asset base because of that. And they also have a large discretionary business so they manage fund-to-funds vehicles co-investment vehicles where they're investing and directing companies alongside some of their managers uh, as well as secondary vehicles and in particular i I focused on secondaries there so we managed a fund that would buy out limited partners in you know different types of private funds Uh, we would help gps to restructure their funds give additional runway help you know captive venture and private equity funds to spin out become independent and this was when you know, Dodd-Frank was really taking effect in terms of a lot of the financial service firms, um, you know, basically having to get rid of their their venture arms or private equity arms. So you know, we're involved in some things on that side of things, and you know, basically anything where you're buying an existing portfolio of private assets, you know, from a, managed by a third party, and you know, did that for for a couple of years, and then had the good fortune to join a firm called Greenspring Associates, which you know is now over a ten billion dollar venture platform. And you know, their model, it's it's all venture capital, you know, fund of funds, secondaries, and directs. So they have a, a number of different vehicles. But you know, generally speaking, spent my time investing in venture funds. And you know, that was funds like, you know, Benchmark and Excel and Bessemer and Foundry and folks like that. And then a lot of you know, emerging managers, folks like you know, Pair Ventures or Pioneer Square Ventures up in Seattle. Uh, so really kind of the the full gamut as well as internationally. Um, on the secondary side, you know, we were buying, we had a partnership interest, as I mentioned earlier, as well as direct secondary, so buying stock from, you know, founders, you know, early employees, management, whoever it might be, but, you know, buying uh, common stock from from folks like that, and then also just doing very traditional growth stage uh, direct venture. So, you know, it was kind of, you know, series B and later. Uh, we were, you know, leading rounds, you know, very, very involved post-investments, um, so, you know, much more of a you know, true venture strategy versus co-investment strategy, like you might assume, given the fund-to-funds model. So, you know, I did that for a few years and in particular helped to build out their secondary business as well. Um, and, you know, last year I was there spearheading their efforts in the blockchain space. And, you know, we can, we can go more into that if you'd like, but, you know, as, as you might imagine, that's what, what led to, uh, to starting Cut Capital.
0: Yeah. And so I want to talk a lot about like the process you use, right? You sat in the seat multiple times at multiple firms. So you kind of seen how many people do this, but one of the things, uh, when you're sitting in that kind of institutional LP, uh, seat is there's people who have trusted you with their capital and, uh, and are relying on you to deploy capital, but you're really doing the work of sourcing, Vetting and ultimately deciding or recommending hey this fund over another fund, and so maybe walk me through like what does that due diligence process look like, um, and then we can get into some of the intricacies as to you know where people kind of stumble and where people thrive, but what does the process of due diligence look like uh, when evaluating fund managers
1: yeah, so you know it's it's a very qualitative process, um, you know unlike maybe i don't know maybe hedge fund investing, which is maybe much more quantitative but it's a very relationship-driven business overall. You know, if you just think about the world of venture capital, because these are people you're gonna be partnering with for 10 to 15 years. So just you know, getting to know people, you know, making sure these are people that you're going to, you know, want to work with over you know, a, a very long period of time is kind of an important first step in just getting to know these folks. Um, you know, from a quantitative perspective, before kind of getting to more of the qualitative assessment. You know, there is some work you can do and in particular that comes down to analyzing the track record and you know cutting it a lot of different ways so looking at okay, you know every deal they've done, you know looking at it by partner, look at it by geography, look at it by sector, you know look at it by stage, kind of all the different ways that you could cut the data and you know see what trends you can find from that. so you know maybe you see that there's one partner who's really driving all the returns. You know, maybe there's one geography that they're really horrible at and they clearly just need to stop investing in <laughs> or you know whatever that data tells you and look at okay well how does that relate to their strategy going forward you know is that partner who has really driven historical returns retiring or whatever it might be or maybe they're taking a bigger role and that's a great thing and you know, trying to draw conclusions from that um and then you know using that to assess how their strategy is going forwards and you know hopefully um, you know that it kind of supports their their continued strategy, or you know maybe that just leads to certain questions around um, like attribution, for example. And like, oh, look look at this partner who's not there anymore, and somehow they are attributed all the bad deals. Like that's that's kind of a little little questionable. <laughs> um, so yeah, it tells you a lot from that perspective. But uh, you know, generally speaking, it is much more qualitative, right? So. You're, you're, you need to dig in, understand their strategy. What's their approach? You know, what's their process to doing investments? How are they sourcing deals? You know, how are they working with companies to you know, as a board member and you know, helping to you know, provide value post investment? And just generally speaking, like who who is who are the most uh, sought after VCs by founders? You know, who's seen the best deal flow? Who do you know founders really want to work with? And you know, kind of top founders that you would want to have have access to. And you know how do they differentiate themselves in the market? Why are founders going to choose them versus anybody else? You know a lot of a lot of that stuff, which is you know you just learn through conversation. Um, you know is very important. And then there's also you know the operational side, right? So what does the firm look like? What does the team look like? You know what does the organization look like? Um, you know are you comfortable with them? You know their ability to to run a firm and run a business and build a team and bring on talent. Um, and you know, all of that is, is very important, including, you know, back office and a lot of kind of the more, uh, you know, less sexy, but important operational things. Um, I guess one other key thing is, is portfolio construction. So, you know, generally speaking, you know, I, I certainly have a preference, for example, I'd say most LPs do for, you know, slightly more concentrated portfolios versus like a broad spray and pray approach. And, you know, how many deals are you going to be doing? You know, how do you think about reserves, for example? And, you know, you see, you see that as a big issue with a lot of first-time funds where they don't realize they need to keep a lot of reserves to continue backing these companies and they end up with, you know, very small ownership and, you know, they don't have the ability to keep investing in their best deals. Um, you know, what kind of ownership are they targeting? Just kind of how, how are they planning on uh, allocating the portfolio in, in different ways like that?
0: And it, and it seems like it's this weird balance between uh, when you first go in to do the due diligence, you're really kind of um, a detective, right? You're trying to understand what's good, what's not. But then once you say, hey, this is somebody that we want to invest in, at times you almost have to become a salesman now, right? Now you've got to convince them to actually take your capital. And so how do you kind of experience that balance between, uh, you, you want to be able to do the diligence that you want. And sometimes that requires hard questions, have comfortable conversations, uh, you know, kind of, uh, asking for, um, uh, introductions to people that, um, that you can go do reference calls with like all of the things that generally, uh, take work and time and effort. Um, but then at some point you want to turn around and be like, Hey, we're going to be a really easy LP, right. And, uh, you should take our <laughs> money. It's like, how, how do you kind of balance that?
1: Yeah, so I I think it really comes down to the relationship that you build with these folks and not just being, oh, we have this LP who gets our quarterly report and, you know, they come to our annual meeting, but we don't really know them, but really building like a a true personal relationship with the GPs that you're investing in. And, you know, that helps in a a ton of ways, just in terms of, you know, they're being open to you asking tough questions and, you know, kind of the ability to increase act increase allocation to, you know, top funds in the future and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, sorry, can, can, can you repeat the question again? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so just, just like, how do, you, how do you
0: basically balance between, um, you know, being overly uh, kind of investigative on the due diligence process, but then also at the, uh, at the back end, being able to, um, you know, convince them to take your money over maybe in other LPs?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think GPs generally understand you need to go through your diligence, like, you know, just because you're having a conversation with them about the fund, that does not mean you're going to invest in the fund. It's just kind of the process of diligence. And, you know, honestly, sometimes you, you do that, you, you go through your diligence, you end up with a negative assessment and the GPs are not pleased with it. (laughs) And I think that kind of, you know, tells you, um, you know, tells you something when that happens. Um, But yeah, I mean, really, really comes down to, relationship and you know if um if if you build strong relationship with these folks they're much more likely to be be helpful for you to want to make introductions for you you know to help you with direct investments for example and you know just kind of um you know help you out in different ways and you know also about what i mentioned about being you know being a passive lp like you know people want lps who are going to provide value to them as well so like you know, providing feedback, sitting on the LP advisory boards, you know, helping them with LP introductions, you know, even providing them with deal flow when you see it and stuff like that and finding different ways to provide value as an LP. And I think, you know, if if you build that relationship, if you're providing value as an LP, you know, like the, the idea of convincing them to take your money becomes a lot easier because you're not just any other passive LP, but you're like a real partner for them. And, you know, there's someone that you, they really value having as an LP, they want to have as an LP. And then, you know, the, the kind of sales process, well, you know, that is always a part of it for, you know, really hard to access funds, you know, it becomes, becomes a lot easier because, you know, they can really see that it's important to you and that you'd be a great partner for them. And, you know, I, I've definitely been on both sides of that, you know, in, in my prior experience, I've, you know, been at places where know we we lost access to really good funds because you know we didn't properly build those relationships and we were not uh you know an ideal lp in certain situations and then you know i've also been on the other side of that you know like green spring for example where they focus very strongly on those partnerships and you know i've seen how that can really you know um you know really provide value as an lp and you know kind of increasing your allocations with really hard to access funds over time
0: yeah that's awesome and and i guess what are like the major Points where you see fund managers fail the due diligence process, like is there one or two things that you're like, these are just the most common mistakes that people make.
1: So yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, there you have to have a certain level of confidence that they can be successful in what they're doing based on you know past history, right? So for, for a lot of first time funds, and often it's it's not it's not uh, you know they're not at fault for this. It's just kind of inherent in you know, the, in the process, you know, they don't have the proper investment experience or track record or the ability to say, Hey, I've done this in the past. I can continue doing this. And here's, here's the proof of that. Right. So that's, that's often an issue. You know, I'd say another thing is just, you know, differentiation, right? I mean, there's, and there's literally over a thousand early stage venture funds out there. And I mean, if you're an LP, you just have your choice of so, so many funds You know, you really have to figure out how are you differentiating yourselves? Why should I be paying attention to this fund versus the thousand other funds that are coming and talking to me? You know, why why do you stand out? Why are you gonna get better deal flow? And, you know, you really have to be able to, like, tell that story and make that very clear in an initial conversation, um, so that when people come away from that, like, oh, this is really interesting. I think this really stands out. And, you know, kind of just that, like, standing out from the crowd, given how busy LPs are, how many funds they're seeing, it was really important just in terms of, you know, getting kind of second conversation and progressing that conversation forward. Um, you know, obviously from a track record perspective, you know, there, there are definitely funds that have done well without frankly having an amazing track record. But yeah, I'd say for, you know, for the most sophisticated LPs, you know, having that good track record, you know, and, you know, being able to dig dig into that and say, hey, you've been very successful in doing that obviously is a is a key thing. Um, yeah, and there's, there are certain... You know, certain things that specific LPs look for, maybe it's like uh, they, don't, they don't like having single GPs or, you know, other kind of specific criteria like that, where maybe it's just a small fund and they don't, they don't want to be a, you know, above a certain percent of the fund, which, you know, similarly managers can't necessarily do things, do things about, but, you know, there are certain kind of um, criteria like that that, that LPs look for as well, look for as well, which can kind of be a negative signal. Yeah, it makes sense.
0: And then I guess, what have you seen maybe the best fund managers, right? So kind of the top 1%, what do they do that separates them in the eyes of institutional LPs from even the ones who are really, really good? So like the, the you know, kind of five best in the world from everyone else, what, what
1: separates them? Um, I, aside from just having the brand, having the reputation, you know, kind of the, the typical stuff you would expect, I'd say one big piece of it is just building like a lasting, repeatable institution. So, you know, it, th- there are plenty of good investors out there and you know, a lot of a lot of groups who, like, okay, I, I, I'm going to do this for a couple funds and then I'm going to retire or whatever it might be. But I, I think LPs are looking for, and, you know, the top funds are, you know, end up being these, you know, long-lasting institutions that can weather generational transition and really, really building out, you know, for the long term. So firms like, I mean, you know, ones I mentioned earlier, like Benchmark and Excel and Bessemer, they've all been around for, for a long time. They've gone through generational transition. They've continued to be a sought-after partner for LPs, and, you know, that's that's not an easy process. You've also seen firms that have, you know, um, I guess I don't I don't know, name certain names, but have, have not done well with that, <laughs> um, where you know they they have these amazing brands, and then that, that brand has really declined you know, whether it's maybe bad performance or they haven't been able to, you know, continue to build out the team, continue to build out new talent and, you know, have people want to want to come there. So I think that's kind of a underrated, but very important piece of it.
0: Yeah. And so you at some point decided, hey, I'm going to leave and, uh, and go kind of full on into a uh, blockchain and also start um, your, your own organization. So maybe talk us through like, what was the, um, accelerant for wanting to do that and, and ultimately deciding to.
1: Yeah. So for some background, I guess, and how that came to be, uh, so I am I've been tracking the space for a while prior to capital. And I, I went to school with a couple of guys who were early in the space and you know, we, we, we graduated before Bitcoin existed, but you know, they were doing some interesting stuff, uh, later on and caught my attention. They were doing, you know, doing well. And, um, yeah, be honest though, at at first I, I didn't fully dig into it I, I certainly dismissed it a little um but then i started so i started, started green spring mid 2014 so i started doing venture full time and you know that space started becoming a little more relevant for my day job so i remember catching up with one of those folks and i think this was late 2014 and you know walking me through you know how how they use their platform and you know just moving crypto around for example I was just kind of blown away by how easy it was and how just how smooth and seamless it was and i remember sending a note out to the full team at the time and it's like hey we should be tracking this company this is really interesting and i I didn't get a single response which was (laughs) kind of a sign of the times but yeah i I was paying more and more attention to that space as i was doing venture full-time but you know the the problem is it wasn't at all relevant for my day job so that really changed in 2017 we started seeing a lot of these dedicated blockchain venture funds emerge um, you yeah, know, you had a couple that had been around for longer, but we saw, you know, a much, much larger in terms of you know, fund size and number of managers and quality of those managers. And so I went out and I was like, all right, I'm going to go out, get some all these funds, build those relationships, you know, just build relationships within the space more broadly, Yeah, you know, spend a lot more time in education. And so I went out there and did that. And, you know, that led to spiriting Green Springs efforts in the space, as I alluded to earlier. And, you know, Green Spring, you know, it wasn't a, you know, wasn't a, a key focus for them. And, you know, I got to the, point where I wanted to spend my full time and attention on it. And yeah, really felt, I uh, agree, we had a pretty broad purview into all things venture between the fund to funds and direct investments and whatnot. And, you know, I, I just really felt like, you know, if you looked at where a lot of the innovation and venture returns had come from for the prior 10 to 15 years, you know, areas like, you know, software and e-commerce and marketplaces and on demand and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of that was, you know, somewhat played out and opportunities becoming more niche and, you know, much more saturated competitive market, obviously, which has also been flushed with a lot of capital. And so I was looking at like, okay, where, you know, where is real innovation going to come from in the next 10 to 15 years? You know, where do I want to spend my time? Where are true venture t- returns going to come from? And, you know, came to the conclusion that, you know, blockchain and crypto was, was that space. Um, you know, unfortunately couldn't spend, you know, my full-time attention on a green spring, so left to to start at Capital, um, which, you know, we, we can, we can go more into if you want, but it's effectively taking green Springs model and applying to the blockchain space. So you know, it's part of your fund to funds and direct investment firm focused on blockchain VC.
0: Got it. And, and so help me understand, like, what is the argument for fund to funds versus going direct to managers for investors? So people that you go talk to and say, Hey, you should work with us versus go to a direct manager. Uh, what, what's kind of that
1: pitch look like? Yeah, so to, I guess to provide some some background, just on fund of funds in general, to give give context, maybe. So, I mean, you know, the the fund of funds idea has been around, I, mean, I guess, since the '90s. So it's it's a model that's been around for for a long time, and you know, it really started as you know more like I guess you could call it traditional fund of funds. So folks that were you know giving you access to a lot of like buyout funds and kind of general private equity. It's like, hey, you know, you don't know this space very well. You know, come give us your money. We'll, we'll, You can just make one commitment and get broad exposure to the space, and you don't have to worry about it. And you know that that became a pretty pretty popular model. you have seen a lot of you know kind of pre-sizable businesses built around that over time. But as LPs have become more and more sophisticated, and you know do more and more of this in house, and just your know, product who's been around for longer, you know that, that that expertise and relationships and access are are important. So areas like you know venture capital or you know, small buyouts, for example, or international, like, you know, if you're sitting here in the US investing in China and emerging frontier markets is, you know, is, is often difficult. So, you know, you've really seen fund of funds thrive in areas like that. And, you know, so why would you use a fund of funds in, in venture capital or in blockchain VC, for example? So, you know, there's a couple of reasons and it depends on what kind of LP you are. You know, for smaller LPs or, you know, smaller teams, I mean, it really just comes down to, you know, bandwidth and efficiency, right? So if you're a, you know, if you're a smaller investor, does it really make sense to write, you know, five or 10 even smaller checks, probably is not a a feasible thing. Um, You know, for for other LPs in general, I I think folks in a space like this really value the diversified model um, and saying, hey, I can make one commitment, get exposure to let's say 10 funds. And, you know, especially in a space like blockchain venture, yeah, I think having exposure to different parts of the market is very important. So, you know, different structures, different views on the market, different geographies, you know, different structures. And, you know, it's it's often, you know, difficult for people to take the time. Okay, I'm going to spend, you know, whatever, you know, significant amount of time is required to, you know, really dig into the space, get to know all those funds, you know, make those assessments, and you end up making, you know, a handful of commitments. And it's just much more, efficient to outsource that to someone who has the expertise has relationships you know has the inside baseball on on the market and the funds and you know the the ability to you know really do a lot of referencing you know not just the ones they ask you to who are all going to say good things but (laughs) you know have the network within the space to really dig around and you know get to the bottom of what's going on so you know there's a handful of different reasons and you know i think over time as as this space emerge you know sorry you know kind of progresses you will know, see what you see in the traditional venture space, which is access also becomes a key a key thing, right? Because you know, if you're if you're an, you know an LP in you know Sequoia or Benchmark or Greylock or whoever, um, you know that, that's that's not something that's really repeatable. So you know, if you're a new LP coming into the space, having access to these funds that are you know impossible to access is also you know a key differentiator, and being able to provide that access to LPs is you know obviously a high, highly valued resource.
0: Yeah, makes uh, makes sense. And I guess, how do you look at uh, kind of the blockchain fund landscape, right? Meaning that, uh, first of all, are you looking at just VC or are you looking at kind of the entire landscape, even liquid traded funds, et cetera? And then inside of uh, the blockchain fund space, like how do you think about that difference between structures and strategies?
1: Yeah, so when, I guess when, when we look at the blockchain VC landscape, we're focused specifically on what we focus out at Hook Capital, which is only closed-end venture funds that are focused on blockchain. So you know, it excludes hedge funds, excludes you know hybrid, hybrid funds, as, as they're called, and I could get more into that, but you know, these are all closed-end venture funds. And that universe, I think we're, tra- we're currently tracking 66 or 67 funds that meet that criteria globally. So, yeah, I think it's a lot more than people realize. There are quite a number of funds out there. Um, You know, what that landscape looks like though, is it's about 70% U.S. So in terms of location of those funds, you know, certainly the majority are are in the U.S. You know, the other 30% are, generally speaking, split between Europe and Asia. Um, And the, the landscape overall i mean it's a it's a landscape of emerging managers right most of these funds haven't been around for very long and the oldest funds have only been around for maybe six years which you know for a venture fund really really isn't that long so you know you just don't have you know kind of these you know leg you know legacy institutions that have been in this space for a long time everyone's effectively an emerging manager which you know also kind of to the fund of funds point. You know, increases the value proposition there since you know selection risk is really high when you can't look at a 10-15 year track record. Um and you know overall you know if you look at the you know total amounts that these funds are either have raised or are trying to raise if if they're raising right now, you know that number is about 4.2 billion. Um, which Probably sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, relative to the overall VC landscape, it's like nothing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very, very small amount on a, on a relative basis. Um, so, you know, there is a fair amount of money, you know, being raised by these venture funds, but it's, it's a very, very small piece of the, over their overall venture landscape. Um, so, yeah. And, and as
0: part of that, like when you look into uh, the different structures or VC funds, right? It sounds like most of the structures all actually line up uh, for the most part. Um, On the manager side, like, do you see the emergence now of pre-seed seed, seed, kind of series A, series B, uh, growth stage, you know, kind of the, the mirroring of what you see outside of the blockchain landscape in venture, or is it still so early that you're actually getting firms that are kind of playing at all of the stack? Uh, ma- mainly out of necessity because the companies need their, their capital and their backing yes
1: yeah, so i guess for for quick context before answering that directly um you know the most of the closed end venture funds are are investing a majority in a majority in equity um yeah, i I say most also do not, not all but most also do some level of token investing but it 's a you know generally speaking a smaller piece of what they do and on on the token side that tends to be you know very early stage in in nature because while those are still private you know inherently they're kind of more like the equivalent of of seed stage um but on the equity side specifically you know you definitely see the exact same um exact same things you see in the traditional venture world where you have you know the same series of rounds pre-seed seed series a series b or whatever it might be for a specific company and in terms of the venture funds focus Um, you know, it really started where basically everyone was a seed fund, right? Because if you look a few years back, I mean, that was where you were investing, you know, just inherently as an investor in this space. And you've really seen that evolve, especially in the past two or three years where there's much more of a bifurcation now. And I'd say it's largely driven by fund size. You have, you know, a handful of funds that are on the larger end of the spectrum. And, you know, those are kind of acting, you know, although they'll still do, you know, some seed investing, like, you know, most larger venture funds would. You know, they're really most of the capital is going to more like traditional Series A rounds. Um, you know, maybe there's a Series B mixed in there, whatever it might be. But you kind of think of those as like your traditional Series A investors. Um, you know, I'd say the the bigger portion of the market and most of the smaller funds are you know seed pre seed investors. Um, but you you definitely are starting to see that bifurcation, and you know especially as some of the larger funds have moved up market in terms of fund size over the past couple of years. Yeah, there's been an interesting opportunity for new funds to, you know, basically fill that gap at the pre-seed and seed level and establish them as, you know, kind of next-gen firms, I guess you could say, at at that part of the market. Got it. And then how do you
0: think about um, kind of the blockchain funds interacting with uh, the traditional venture funds, right? Meaning that if you've got most of the blockchain-focused funds being kind of seed, pre-seed, maybe even up to Series A, obviously those companies are going to need large amounts of capital uh, later in the stage of of development. And so you're going to have to rely on non-blockchain focused funds, at least right now, to to kind of um, continue to fund those businesses. And so do you do anything in terms of understanding kind of the relationships between traditional venture funds and uh, the early stage blockchain funds? um, Or just how do you think about that kind of uh, interaction?
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't say it's a key. Part of part of our focus from a diligence perspective, in terms of like specifically, what are those relationships? I mean, it often does come up during diligence, just given you know, a lot of the, a lot of the groups that they're co-investing with in their existing portfolios, for example. But I, I would say that it, I mean, it is something that we pay attention to in general for you know, really really Series B and later, because you have you have plenty of funds that are doing seed investing and Series A investing, but you know, generally speaking, the funds in this space are pretty small. It's not like you have, you know, NEA who has, you know, $3 billion or whatever it is, and they can continue to fund companies forever. Um, You know, they are clearly reliant on outside investors to continue leading future rounds, you know, Series B, Series C, Series D. So, you know, I'd say you know, given there aren't a ton of companies that are later stage in this space, it's still kind of TBD in terms of exactly how that plays out. I do think, you know, they will be reliant on generalist firms. There aren't any, you know, sizable or maybe at all, but sizable later stage venture funds dedicated to this space. Um, So, you know, looking at funding rounds for some of the companies that have raised like Series B rounds, for example, recently, I haven't seen the issue raising capital, but um, it is definitely something that is a potential concern. We're you know, watching closely going forward.
0: Got it. And then I guess another piece of this is um, you also mentioned that you guys may do some direct investing. Maybe explain a little bit about what, uh, what you guys would do there.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so the earlier conversation around kind of the fund-to-funds model. Uh, another, I'd say, important development in the fund-to-funds world is that you can't really just be a fund of funds anymore. So, you know, the, the groups have been most successful have effectively built platforms around the fund of funds. And you know, if, if you think about what the fund of fund model is, you're an LP and a bunch of underlying funds, you have access to all sorts of very unique non-public information on the underlying portfolios. You know, you have access to, you know, board members of these companies, um, you know, you just have very unique access to, you know, in terms of relationships and information. And, you know, if you're... If you're thinking about how, how can we utilize that for the benefit of our LPs, you know, clearly, you know, the key answer to that is doing direct investing. And in particular for us, you know, so we're we're not competing with early stage managers. We don't do early stage investing. You know, that's you know, that, that's much harder and we, we leave that to our partners. <laughs> but you know, what we look to do is track their portfolio companies and then you know, try effectively try to invest in their best companies once they're really series B and later. And you know we only do equity, so we're not making token token investments. But that could be anywhere from doing you know a Series B round with a few million in revenue on the early side, all the way through buying pre-IPO secondaries and, and everything in between. And you know also to the earlier conversation around you know the relationships you build with these funds. You know we're we're not we, like we don't ask for co-investment rights, for example, right? We everything we do is just built off of the relationships we have with these GPs and the information we have. And, you know, ha- having them like want to help us on deals and, you know, just having that kind of be a, a regular part of the dialogue, right? So I think that's a much better approach than trying to structure it where they're like forced to give you co-investment. And, you know, we're also not co-investing per se. You are kind of coming in, you know, I guess, technically after our early stage managers would. But yes, yeah, so that's, you know, that's part of our, our focus as well. And, you know, we'll also... Find other ways to, you know, create value based on your relationships information we have, whether that's buying LP secondaries, you know, that could potentially be buying like GP stakes, underlying funds, you know, and just looking for different ways that we can, you know, use our position to our advantage and for our LPs.
0: For sure. And then talk to me a little bit about, um, your interactions with founders uh, obviously on the direct investing side that may come up some but also on the due diligence side right of, of uh, kind of diligence and the managers themselves Um, kind of what does that relationship look like and kind of how do you normally go about uh, those conversations
1: yeah it's a good question um so it, it is definitely an important part of diligence and you know typically as part of that you will talk to you know portfolio company ceos so you know, you'll typically they'll give you a reference list, and it'll have you know some number of names on it. So, you know, th- those are good people to talk to. Um, obviously, they're you're 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 going to assume they're being positive, but you know, it's important to talk to those folks and get their perspective. <laughs> um, you know, it's also important to talk to people who aren't on that list. And you know, to your, earl- your earlier comment around like, you know, being an easy LP, you don't want to just call all their CEOs and like clearly disrupt business from that perspective, but you know, it is important that you talk to folks and figure out who would be good to talk to who you know is not on that list. Or, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, instead of just talking to the three CEOs who are their best portfolio companies, also talking to ones who have been, you know, have not done as well and seeing how they serve as a partner through that process of things not going well. Right. That's that's obviously very important as well. So, you know, in terms of what you talk to them about, I mean, it's typically, you know, where did the relationship come from? You know, how did you get to know that person? How did they get interested in the company? You know, why did you choose to work for them, or try? Try sorry, why did you choose to work with them? You know, and choose them as a partner? Was it because they just gave you the highest price, or you know, was it because you really valued them as a partner? Maybe it was a pre-existing relationship, um, and you know, maybe you went with them even though they they weren't the best price. You know, what? How have they been like to to work with? you know, post-investment, what's the cadence of communication look like, how are they as a board member or whatever, you know, whatever that might be, you know, just generally, how are they viewed by founders in the space? Um, and just kind of really digging into that relationship and figuring out, you know, why did they choose to work with them? How did they get access to the deal? What they've been like to work with post-investment and, you know, kind of what's their you know, reputation amongst founders?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And then I guess, before we finish up, I want to talk about uh, your LPs, right? And kind of the conversations you're having on that end. So uh, you go out, you talk to people, they give you money, and then you go make these investments we've been talking about. But like, what is uh, that environment been like as you talk to uh, investors, you know, kind of let's talk maybe pre-pandemic and then post uh, the start of the pandemic, um, kind of what's changed? What what are you kind of hearing and, and what does it look like?
1: Yeah, so I mean pre pre-pandemic, I'd say trend wise, things were good in terms of LPs being increasingly interested in this space and you know, generally just being much more educated going into conversations. So, you know, if you compare it to a couple of years ago, like the, the level of education, generally speaking, that we have to do in a meeting it is much less than it was two years ago. And it's much more about, you know, what what's our focus, you know, et cetera, rather than what's blockchain, what's crypto. So that, that's been a really good development. And I think for a lot of groups, it's, it's just been a very long education process, especially on the institutional side,
0: you know, and they, ha- they
1: have to get up to speed and then they have to convince their, you know, their team and then their board and whatnot to actually allocate capital, so that's a long process. And, you know, it's been good to see uh, institutions kind of get, you know, go through that process and kind of closer to allocating capital, you know, broadly speaking. Um, you know, definitely when the, when the pandemic hit, you know, so let's say back in March, you, you saw a lot of folks basically just go on hold like, okay, we, you know, the market's down 20% over the past couple of weeks, <laughs> you know, we need to kind of just put the brakes on here and see what's happening. Um, you know, for large institutions where, you know, they were looking at this space, but maybe it wasn't like a, a true priority. It was just kind of something that they were looking at, but um, you know, not a, not a, like a key focus. They definitely you know reverted a bit back to kind of, Key priorities and, you know, kind of their existing portfolio and kind of managing the current environment. Um, You know, over the past, I guess, what, four months now, uh, you've definitely seen things go a bit back more, more to normal in terms of LP conversations. Um, Obviously, having the public markets recover is is helpful. Um, You know, the fact that it's not necessarily tied to our underlying economy. um, You know, is a separate conversation but you know in terms of their portfolio values having them recover is is obviously helpful and um yeah i'd say also given you know some of the tailwinds over the past four months that have been created in in this space um you know just kind of increasing focus around crypto as a potential macro hedge you know a lot of you know certain folks who have come out like Paul Tudor jones for example who has come out you know saying he's allocating to you know to bitcoin or bitcoin related investments you know, things like that have been very helpful and just generally, you know, a lot of the technology, technological, um, you know, tailwinds that, you know, you're seeing as well. And, you know, that's been good for, you know, for certain portfolio companies. And I think also just has brought additional attention to the space and kind of made people say, hey, I need to be, you know, looking at the space I have if I haven't been already. So, you know, that's helped to offset some of the, uh, I guess, some of the, you know, folks who were kind of on hold um, during during you know, part of the pandemic. And, you know, generally speaking, we're, we're definitely seeing things recover from that perspective.
0: Got it. And and I guess as part of all of this, what's been your biggest learning, right? As you kind of went out, started Hut Capital, uh, and and have kind of gone through the process that you've gone through, what's been the biggest, uh, learning that you've had, or maybe the biggest surprise?
1: Uh, yeah, the, the biggest learning has definitely been fundraising. So, yeah, I, I was not. I mean, to be clear, I, I was not responsible for fundraising in my in my prior you know prior roles. Um, you know, I was very focused on investing. So you know, going out and raising a first-time fund as someone who has not fundraised before has been a, a huge learning experience in terms of you know how, like what that process looks like of building relationships and you know how long that takes. You know, who you should be talking to you know, how you go about fundraising, just, you know, like who you should, you know, like what are the different, uh, like, what are the different avenues to try to raise capital and find, you know, folks that you should be talking to. Um, it's like, just the, the idea of how you fundraise has been like, a, probably massive learning. And there's definitely been, you know, mistakes I've made through that process that I, I've learned like, okay, maybe I wasn't doing this the right way. And I need to kind of refocus on maybe this part of the market, for example, from a fundraising perspective. And I've definitely adjusted our strategy, um, you know, since, since we got started. But yeah, I think uh, p- people underestimate, you know, like the, the challenge of raising, raising a first time fund. And um, yeah, it's just uh, definitely been a big learning.
0: <laughs> it, uh, it always is. Uh, wh- where do you think all of this is going? Right. In terms of kind of blockchain venture, uh, does this grow into something that uh, remains kind of a subset of venture? Does it kind of get as big as um, maybe the way people look at fintech or, or consumer social or something like that in the venture world?
1: Uh, where do you think it's
0: going?
1: Yes, yeah, so I'd say partly that depends on your view of the space. I mean, I, 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 my, my expectation is that it's something significantly bigger than fintech and eventually kind of ends up eating fintech. Um, you know, given my very bullish view on on the space in general, um, but I mean, if you look at it today, you know, you you largely have these dedicated funds who are investing in the space, and it's it's developed very differently than what you've seen in different areas. When I mean, you think about, you know, like parts of the market like AI or you know, I don't know, marketplaces and like different you know, other waves of recent technology, you've largely had the dedicated funds come in and you know continue to get a lot of the a lot of the gains and returns and you know continue to do very well with these different ways of technology um and that, you know there's certainly some dedicated funds that have been in there but you haven't seen like you, what you see in this space where you know you have this huge number of dedicated funds who are really you know the experts in the space they're where you know most of the top founders are going to for for capital and you know really kind of being like you know where you raise Venture money from in this space, so you know with with that in mind, I, I do think that is going to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, I've actually been honestly surprised by that you haven't seen traditional venture funds come into this space more aggressively. Just I guess given my view of it, although at the same time, you know if I if I look back at my myself like three years ago. You know it, it is a big hurdle to kind of say, hey, I'm going to allocate capital into this space for the first time and something I don't fully understand. So I, I I do think that's going to take take time. But I think we'll continue to see, you know, a, a large number of these dedicated funds. You know, the like the 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 way that these funds invest also is very different than in the traditional world when you have to worry about things like tokens and you know like are you going to stake your tokens? And a lot like a lot of the kind of crypto specific infrastructure that a lot of these journalist funds are, are definitely just not set up to handle. Um, you know, the expertise is very different. And you know, if, if you're not spending your full time in this space, it's really, really, really hard to you know, really keep up with what's going on, making sure you have know, the access and relationships to, you know, to be a successful investor. So, you know, there's, there's always gonna be exceptions, but I do think you'll continue to see the generalist fund, try the, the dedicated funds thrive and, you know, be the sought after partners in the space. Um, you know, eventually, I mean, surely you will see the generalist funds spend more time in this space, become more active. And, you know, I think that'll be good for the market overall because it means, you know, more capital will come in. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, tomorrow, but eventually that will definitely happen and, you know, I, I think that'll be good for, you know, good for startups um, you know, in terms of how that plays out over time. I think, you know, if you look at the long term, you know, you'll have, you know, a lot of dedicated funds in this space. And I think you'll have a lot of generalist funds who are also investing in the space much more than they are today. But so I do think that the dedicated funds given the unique nature of this space will, you know, continue to thrive and be a key piece of the market.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, Before I wrap up, I ask everyone the same two questions. The first being, what is the most important
1: book that you've ever read? Hmm, that's, that's a good, a good question. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm not much of a reader. I'm much more of a, of a music person. Um, So I I spend, yeah, I spend much more time listening to to music than I do reading, but my most important book I've, I've ever read. Um, honestly, I'm not sure. Um I can't say that there's one that's, you know, particularly influenced me um, you know, more, you know, in like in a profound way or you know, more than others in that sense. You know, there's plenty that I've I've enjoyed, but um, you know, generally speaking, I'm I'm much more, you know, much more into listening to music as Um, a way to spend my time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've never had anyone say that, but that is an awesome answer. Uh, The next question is a little bit more fun, which is uh, aliens, believer or non-believer?
1: I mean, absolutely believer. I think just if you think about how massive the universe is, the fact that we exist here, it's just, it's incomprehensible to me that there couldn't also be life somewhere else that's evolved. So, I mean, I, I... I have to think that there is life somewhere out there in the universe, and probably quite a bit of it. You know, if you think about the massive scope of the universe and how you know you could have literally thousands of civilizations and not never have one ever ever make contact with the other. Um, so yeah, my, I think there has to be life besides us out there.
0: I tend to think that you're probably right. We'll we'll see, <laughs> but I, I, I tend to think so. Uh, to finish up, you could ask me one question. What's the one question you have for me?
1: Um, hmm. So for, for, your, for your podcast series, how, how much preparation does it take to get ready for for a podcast? I, I apologize if you've been asked this before, but I'm you know, curious how much preparation goes into it. So I try to do as little as possible, actually. <laughs> um,
0: and and uh, it's this weird thing. I've talked to other people who have similar types of podcasts. And uh, in the beginning, I would like do all this research and show up. and like I basically yeah. in my head already had like, oh, this is what we're going to talk about and um what happens is it just becomes kind of robotic and it's kind of like okay i'm gonna ask this question i pretty much already know the answer that's why i'm asking the question then i'll ask the next question and like it it just i don't know it was less rewarding for me because i kind of had already done all the work and and learned everything before the uh, episode started so now you know I understand who the guest is kind of their background um usually i'll have a couple of talking points but then i just want to have a conversation and, and uh really ask the questions that i'm curious about right and kind of just naturally let that play out and so uh it's become much more rewarding experience for me to do less preparation um and uh and it seems like there's a couple other people that uh, are kind of in the same uh same boat and so um yeah i just always remind myself that like you never want to come unprepared at the same time, you don't want to uh, show up and have like every single question scripted out. And it's just, you know, like anyone could sit down with a piece of paper and, and basically fire off the questions and, uh, and, and do the uh, recording.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have to imagine like the, the more of these you do, you know, the, the more you're comfortable uh, not having everything mapped out as well. So <laughs> that's interesting. So my friends
0: sometimes will be like, Hey, man, we're not recording a podcast right now. Like, stop asking me so many questions. So, <laughs> look, I'm just trying to learn. It's just trying to have fun, right? Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Where, um, where can we send people to find you on the internet and find out more about uh, Hut Capital?
1: Yeah. So, Hut Capital, you can find us at hutcapital.com. Uh, we've also been doing uh, a webinar series featuring leading blockchain VCs, which you can find at hutcapital.com slash webinars. Um, you can find, you know, me on Twitter at BH Pollock, although I'm not super active on there, uh, as well as Hut Capital, uh, which is at, at Putt Cap on Twitter. Uh, we've also done some, uh, some writing on Medium, which is, at, you know, medium.com slash at Capital. Um, and yeah, that's a good way to find us.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I think that, uh, you were leading the way in terms of, uh, fund to funds in the blockchain space. So hopefully, uh, you know, more people will come check out what you guys are doing, and uh, we we'll get some more capital into uh, into the space.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Anthony. A lot of fun, and appreciate you having me on here.
0: So thank you.